You're listening to InRay from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of InRay features insights from experts across the world into the most complex issues facing legal and compliance professionals today. This is Akash Brahmachari, and this is Dispute Diaries, a series from InRay. We'll be looking at the world of disputes through the lens of lawyers, investigators, and specialists. Today, we will be discussing disclosure applications and their use in investigations. This is an important topic because it deals with the problem faced by many cross-border investigations concerning the availability or lack thereof of critical information. How do lawyers and investigators work together to get the desired outcome for their client? Global capital flows means that it's easier now to move assets and conceal them from investigators than it ever was before. A debtor can move an asset and hold it through an offshore company whose shareholders are not listed publicly. This poses a problem for investigators and lawyers alike because we need to prove that the debtor owns the asset and if there's no shareholding information available, how do you prove that? It can be quite frustrating for an investigator to see assets which are quite valuable but being unable to prove that that asset is controlled by the subject is highly frustrating. As we will see today, however, all hope is not lost. We're going to speak with two lawyers today, Joel Seeger, a partner in Flatgate's London office, and Jagdish Menezes, of counsel in Quinn Emanuel's London office. Joel is a disputes lawyer who acts in a wide range of complex cross-border and high-stakes disputes, both in court and in arbitration proceedings. He specializes in freezing injunctions, Norwich pharmacal orders, and other forms of interim relief. Joel is listed in the Legal 500 and is described by clients as a masterful lawyer who's at the top of his game and possesses an unrivaled wealth of experience, insight and skills. Welcome, Joel. Hi, thanks, Akash. Jagdish is off counsel at Quinn Emanuel's London office. His practice focuses on international arbitration, investor state and commercial, as well as multi-jurisdictional disputes involving issues of fraud and corruption. He was recognized by the 2020 UK edition of Legal 500 as a key lawyer for commercial disputes and described in a testimonial as a tremendous professional with an extremely impressive degree of commitment and mastery of the case. He is also listed among the arbitration future leaders, non-partners, in the Who's Who Legal Guide for 2023. Jagdish, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Akash. Let's dive straight in. Let's start with what a disclosure application is uh, and discuss what the key disclosure avenues are and discuss how we can work well together as investigators and lawyers. Um, Joel, on to you. Sure. Thanks, Akash. Well, I guess we start out by thinking about um, uh, disclosure applications in terms of what we're seeking, um, who we're seeking it from and why. And um, really, uh, you're looking for uh, you're making an application to a court or a tribunal for information or documents that you can't otherwise obtain. And um, really, uh, the question at the outset is, are you seeking it from a party uh, pre-action against a party you're going to litigate against? Are you seeking it within existing proceedings? And are you seeking it from, or are you seeking it against a third party who is not in the proceedings, but who may later become a party. So you have to sort of frame at the outset the purpose of the uh, application. Uh, You'll certainly have a clear purpose in mind and then work out um, what, by 
what you actually need in terms of the informational documents you're seeking. And then once you've identified those sort of basic questions, you'll be then, uh, you know, engaging solicitors to sort of prepare the appropriate uh, application documents and evidence in support. Understood. Thanks. Um, Jagdish, anything to add? One of the things to think about is what are the, what are the methods that mm-hmm. you could use to get the documents? And obviously yep. your investigators would have already exhausted a lot of intelligence gathering methods, if I can put mm-hmm. it that way. Um, there, are, there are other things that they may or may not have used, such as statutory mechanisms to get mm-hmm. information. For example, um, the Freedom of Information Act requests. Most countries have something similar. Um, where you where you make a request to a government authority, uh-huh. which could include a, a registrar of companies, and you try to get the information out that way, um, or, or or in some cases you just ask. Uh, to to put it to put it bluntly, you you, you ask and 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 you might get uh, the documents from someone who is cooperative. Um, so I, I think I think that's uh, that that's another thing to think about. You know what method is it that you're going to employ before you you take legal or judicial methods where you approach courts. Understood. And would you engage investigators before or after or how does it um, not matter? Does it depend on each case? I think, I think, I think it, I think it depends on each case, Mm -hmm. but if I had a preference, it would be to, to, to get the investigator in right from the outset. Um, I think the investigators key role is, is to give leads, Mm -hmm. um, leads into what you're actually looking for. And leads into what is not useful to look for because it's a dead end or, or it's irrelevant information. Um, so I think having the investigator on board early is, is always a, is a preference. Understood. Thanks. Um, Joel, should we jump into some type of common disclosure orders? Um, sure. Yeah. So let, if we're focusing for, for simplicity on orders against third parties, mm-hmm. then I suppose there are some um, well-known types of applications uh, for disclosure that you would consider against Parties that you either can't obtain documents from by way of a request, as Jagdish mentioned, for example, banks, often Mm -hmm. they like to see a court order before they'll give you documents. You know, if they've got transaction records that you need to use against the defendant, you've been through the frustrating process of writing to the bank and not obtaining the documents. This is assuming there's no urgency, for example, because urgency is a a big factor in, in the type of application you make and the justification for such an application. But assuming that we're talking about applications against third parties, you'd be thinking about, certainly in the English jurisdiction, a Norwich Pharmacal application or a, or a Bankers Trust order are, mm-hmm. are two of the applications uh, that you would consider potentially making. I mean, there are others involving applications in relation to statutory routes, as Jagdish mentioned, but um, those are probably the, the, the two obvious ones. Got it. Um, and in terms of a Norwich Pharmacal application, you mentioned English jurisdiction. Would that also work in uh, offshore jurisdictions like the Cayman Islands or the BVI? I'm guessing it would, right? Um, yes. So I suppose if you if you um, are in if if the proceedings are in London mm-hmm. and you're seeking uh, to get an order from a foreign uh, party, then uh, we're going to come on to the. The, the, the gateway, which uh, enables now service outside of the jurisdiction. I think if, you're, if your proceedings are in the offshore uh, jurisdiction to start off with and you're seeking orders elsewhere, then I think that would probably come under a different uh, system of law and then you'd need to start, engage local counsel. But um, assuming mm-hmm. we're talking about England and Wales, then um, yes, you, would, you, you can now seek to serve out the jurisdiction one of these 
uh, orders for, for, for information from third parties. Understood. Um, Jagdish, anything further you want to add? It's a good question because obviously Joel and I are both English lawyers and we can mm. tell you a lot about the English practice. But one of the things that one needs to think about is where is the best place to get the information from? And it, it can vary in different cases. Sometimes we always go for the obvious option. We think there's a company there. It's in, say, as you mentioned, the BVI or something. And, and so we have to get the information out of the BVI. But that's not necessarily the case always. Sometimes you can get the information further up the structure, further down the structure. So you might need to target some other more disclosure-friendly jurisdiction to get the same information out. Um, and it can be useful because you might be hiding your target from your opponent. Remember that unlike the work that you investigators do, which is behind the scenes, once we're in a court context, chances are it's going to be on notice, on notice to someone, some either the third party or potentially your opponent is going to know you're going after the information. And so that that's why um, I would say there are obviously disclosure-related um, court applications that can be brought in almost every court in the world. There's, I, do, I can't think of a jurisdiction where it's just a no-go. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to think about where you're going in the first place um, in, in terms of the strategy. Um, an example I can give of things that are sort of out of the box, but available are in some countries you've got to, when you're trying, you, Joel, you mentioned about getting information out of banks. You could, you've got to go to court and get a traditional court order. And, and you know, mm -hmm. that's that. Um, there are countries in the Middle East where you can approach the court for an order effectively against the central bank. Mm -hmm. And the central bank will then go to the banks under their jurisdiction in that country and ask for information about a depositor. So it's, it's again, when I, when I mentioned, you know, who's the target of your request, you'd not conventionally think, right, I've got to get, you know, the central bank involved. Mm -hmm. But in those countries, the central bank essentially takes an umbrella role and figures out which of the, which of the banks have the, have the accounts. Of, of the depositor who's your target. I think that's a really important point because as English lawyers, we obsess probably about our own, the weapons of the English courts, mm -hmm. but actually where there's a high threshold for obtaining documents um, and maybe, you know, the investigators are supporting those applications, uh, potentially in relation to how frustrated they've been at obtaining evidence. Uh, the, 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 the question is really, should you be actually thinking more broadly and, and starting out in a foreign jurisdiction uh, and just going straight there for the order yep. rather than, you know, for a banker's trust order where, you know, the thresholds are, are, are more difficult because of bank secrecy issues. It's often worth just considering another option, as you say, Jack. Yeah. And, 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 and sometimes um, what happens is you might be able to come into the English court system mm -hmm. through a foreign court. Now that, that sounds a bit confusing, but to break it down, you can, if your case is in a foreign court to begin with, or your counterparty is in a foreign court, the, the relevant information is held in England. Joel's already talked to you about Norwich Pharmacal Orders, Bankers Trust Orders, where the person holding the information is resident in England. And so that's why your, your first port of call is, well, I'll just go and get an NPO or a Bankers Trust Order against them, as the case may be. Another way to do it is to tell the foreign court mm -hmm. to issue what we call letters of request or letters rogatory, which are basically under these international 
mutual assistance judicial con- uh, conventions mm-hmm. for judicial assistance. And what ends up happening is a court in America, for example, will issue a, a letter that looks very posh and fancy and mm-hmm. it has all the sorts of seals and bells and whistles, and it will be sent to the court in the United Kingdom. And, and the high court in England will be asked, if the person is in England and Wales, will be asked to assist the US court with obtaining certain evidence. Um, th- those processes, those court processes are actually quite mechanical. Okay. As opposed to the evidentiary thresholds and the legal standards you're meeting for NPOs and bankers trust orders. These can be quite mechanical. The uh-huh. only the only caveat there is that whereas in regular litigation in England, say between you and I, it would be an all cards on the table approach where we would be expected to put, put forward all documents that were helpful or harmful to our case. Um, where a foreign court is asking for documents, the, the expectation of the English court is it's a very specific, narrow request. Mm-hmm. So there's no opportunity for a fishing expedition for documents. There's no opportunity for information gathering. You can't say, I'd like to know that, please. You've got to be very clear about what documents you're looking for and why before the English court will sign off on it. So the one one thing to note is that that's not too different from the NPO regime. Even in mm-hmm. when you're looking for an NPO, it has to be pretty specific what you're asking for. Um, but but uh, yeah, the, the 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 reason I mention it is just to point out that there are other ways to access the English court's powers to order someone to get give documents. Absolutely, thanks for that. Um, I think as an investigator, sometimes we are guided by where we are told to look, mm-hmm. and sometimes widening our uh, perspective helps. Um, there were a couple of cases that spring to mind. There was one where um, an entire corporate structure was moved under a new offshore company. And we were able to get those documents through a third country, which no one had considered until then, simply because, to your point, Jagdish, that country had better reporting mechanisms and there was more information in the public domain. And we found a piece of paper linking that company to the new structure, um, which was super helpful. But, um, you know, I think that precluded a disclosure order. Where where I want to really take this is, uh, as an investigator, when should we bring a lawyer in um, to consider a disclosure request and how efficient is it? The reason I ask is because sometimes we do hit a brick wall and it can be quite frustrating where you can see an asset. It's really valuable. You know the person you're chasing owns the asset, but it's almost impossible to link it using the tools at your disposal. So um, when should we bring a lawyer in and uh, what what are the key um, bits of information that you'd need from us in order to make a disclosure application? I, I think there's a difference between intelligence and evidence. Right. Um, it's something you you investigators must hear a lot from us lawyers. Mm-hmm. There's, there's the stuff... There's, there's things that you tell us, which is useful to know. You know, you sort of file that away in the back of your mind. You use it as part of the strategy. Mm-hmm. There's there's things that you may tell us that we cannot use, mm-hmm. but they they lead us onto something else. So they form a train of inquiry. And then there's stuff we can use. And it's what we can use that I call evidence because that's what's going in front of the court. And again, with evidence, there's direct evidence. And then there's evidence from which you draw an inference. Right. Uh, so, something like what you mentioned, where you go into a more friendly jurisdiction, you get what one would call the next best thing. Mm-hmm. And then you tell the court, well, I've got the next best thing, which means that the best thing must exist, but it's very hard for me to get it. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of when you would come to the lawyers and say, well, that's it, I've exhausted everything I can do. 
Um, I, I'd like to look at it as have a conversation, have an ongoing dialogue with your council team uh -huh. in terms of what you're doing. Now, uh -huh. of course, you can't tell us your methodology. You can always tell us your sources, but you can tell us broadly what it is that you're doing, which can guide us um, in sort of, it, it has to be an, a, a cooperative approach where both of us are deciding that that's, that, that that's it. The investigator has exhausted their resources. It's time to get, get the courts involved. Um, so so I'd say, I'd say once you've exhausted all your basic tools at your disposal, you start that conversation with the lawyers. You keep them informed. You tell them what advanced tools you have to uh -huh. potentially get the information. And then you do a risk-benefit analysis of whether that's worthwhile as opposed to a court application. Understood. Joel? A starting point for an investigator is why are you being instructed to look into something? Mm -hmm. If you're being instructed in the context of proceedings, then, you know, I'm, my mind is, there's an alarm bell in my mind, which is, you know, are you gathering information for the purposes of litigation? And, it, and, if, and if so, you should be being instructed by a solicitor so that you are retaining privilege. Mm -hmm. So if you've already done investigations for litigation, but you haven't had lawyers involved, there's a chance that there's the information that you've obtained is is not going to be subject to that protection. If, however, you're being instructed directly by a corporate to look into something uh, and that there's sort of litigations not in contemplation, then I think it, it, the tipping point is probably where you think that there is going to be a need for a claim. And that would necessarily involve speaking to a, a solicitor. So it's probably driven by... Uh, I suppose, the purpose of the investigation. Understood. I think, I think that's absolutely right. There were a couple of cases we did recently where we were able to ask a client who was not a law firm to seek legal advice because we felt that we'd exhausted all me legal mechanisms available to us uh, to obtain information, and they did that quite successfully. Um, so I think, I think you're right on that. Um, in terms of jurisdictions we need to keep an eye out for, as an investigator, when we are looking at a multi-jurisdictional case, um, are there any specific countries we need to bear in mind for disclosure applications? Are some countries better at disclosure applications than others? It's a, it's a tricky question because obviously the, the countries that are available to you would be case specific in a sense. Yes. But if, if, if I were to look at it sort of from a very broad approach, we, we know that places like the United States Mm -hmm. are very friendly to ordering what they call discovery, we call document production. Um, there have been, there has actually been some movement where it's getting tighter. Um, mm -hmm. There was, um, it, it, there's, a, there's a route called section 1782 uh, applications, which is you can approach a US court for mm -hmm. evidence, uh, well, for, for documents from someone who's subject to the US court's jurisdiction um, to help in a foreign proceeding. And there was a Supreme Court decision. This was used very heavily, I should say. This, you know, it was the, the go-to remedy for a lot of lawyers around the world because a lot of things pass through America. Yes. And as a result, what the U.S. court can actually help you get is, is surprisingly broad. But there's a twist to the tail, right? There's a twist to the tail. You're absolutely right. So in, in June of last year, there was a, a, a decision that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, this was after a lot of their circuit courts had, had reached different verdicts on it. And the Supreme Court basically held that a foreign arbitration 
could not benefit from the Section 1782 regime, which means that if you're in an international arbitration, mm-hmm. you, you are not able to access the Section 1782 relief from the US courts. And the logic of the Supreme Court, which you know can be debated unendingly by in academic circles, is that the 1782 is meant to assist state mechanisms, so sovereign-backed mechanisms like courts, whereas arbitrations, international arbitrations, are not sovereign-backed mechanisms. Now, there's a gray area there that hasn't been resolved, which is what happens if you've got an international tribunal that is backed by sovereigns. So, for example, mm-hmm. the ICJ. Yes. Um, uh, and, and in some cases, confusingly, arbitration mechanisms are set up in a way where the ICJ judges might appoint members of the tribunal. So the question becomes, well, does that then have some sort of state backing? Um, What happens to ICSID cases where, you know, countries have signed up to the ICSID convention, which is what has given uh, the ICSID got power. And that in this particular case that the Supreme Court decided it was a, there was a bilateral investment treaty involving Lithuania, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't an ICSID case as far as I'm aware. So um, the the US is obviously a good option um, subject to that recent development. There's, there's other countries I mentioned, you know, Middle Eastern countries, which have this surprising route via central banks and things. Um, civil law countries are, are more difficult generally, one would, one would expect, than common law countries because they don't have a open disclosure kind of approach in their general litigation. But having said that, almost all civil law countries do have some mechanism to be able to get documents from third parties. I'm going to hold you to that point, Jagdish. Um, I'm just going to quickly go over to Joel. You're an expert on Section 1782. Um, what can you tell us about um, what happened in June last year? Well, um, that's kind of you to say. I think the 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 applications are obviously made by U.S. lawyers to yes. the U.S. courts, of course, and the remaining um, route to obtaining. 1782 uh, relief is still remains open to us through litigation. Mm -hmm. So uh, as Jagdish said, um, the US Supreme Court has said it doesn't recognize foreign arbitration tribunals as being, uh, um, you know, available for for recognition such that the documents that would pass into those arbitrations are are acceptable anymore. I think that's a possibly a fair summary. But insofar as um, English um, litigation seeking to use 1782s, that's still available. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was a case, um, a recent case involving a litigant in the UK trying to frustrate a 1782 through an injunction, through injunction proceedings within a piece of English litigation who failed mm-hmm. because the, uh, the, the, the court recognizes a principle, which is very important for investigators that um, gathering evidence for proceedings in England and Wales uh, is, is a fundamental principle that um, the court doesn't want to exercise control over that process. So the starting point for investigators is if you're going to America or to another jurisdiction, if you're, you know, if you're using lawful means to obtain evidence, then mm-hmm. the English court will accept the, ga- the methods of gathering that evidence. Good news for investigators. Where I think the test remains... The, the, where the converse uh, applies, where um, the English court will say, actually, we don't agree that 1782 is an appropriate method for gathered, gathering evidence, is where the uh, effect of that is is unconscionable, such that um, you know there's a there's an uncon- there's a there's a resulting abuse 
or problem caused in the English proceedings that the English court doesn't like. The definition of unconscionability, Akash, mm -hmm. is conduct which is oppressive or vexatious or which interferes with the due process of the court. Wow. So it's a pretty high threshold, right? So, uh, for example, uh, where it would where the obtaining testimony through 1782s would result in duplication because the same witness would then later be cross-examined on the same issues or the same documents at trial in England. So um, the US remains an open jurisdiction for gathering evidence for, uh, but, but obviously there's been this uh, curtailment in terms of arbitration. Jagdish, over to you, civil law. So I'm not a civil lawyer. Of um, course. Yeah. Civil law practitioner. So I, I, I stand to be corrected by those who actually mm -hmm. practice in the field. But um, with civil law countries, I think it's an inquisitorial process uh, mm -hmm. when they're dealing with their own cases. And so if you're going into civil law countries, the, the question is, you're obviously going to have to be well advised procedurally on what procedural options are available to you to actually get the information. And it's um, in the EU, for example, there's an EU EU-wide regulation on taking of evidence, but that requires that um, your target is domiciled in the EU, as I understand it. And there's some question marks over whether that is only applicable to judicial proceedings in terms of court proceedings, or it's also applicable to arbitration. Um, but that, that's, that's one route that's open to you there. Um, the, the other thing, the other thing, and th this actually borrows from what is there in common law jurisdictions is, is to go after your opponent themselves. Uh -huh. Um, if they're based, for example, in a civil law country, or as I said, in a common law country and get some sort of freezing relief to which is attached disclosure orders. Right. Okay. So one inside the other. One inside the other. So the, the disclosure order becomes ancillary to a freezing relief. Um, now, now here we're, we're closer towards the end of the line in terms of mm. what we're able to do, because here you need some, you need to have identified something in the first place to freeze. Yes. Um, sometimes that's exactly the information you're looking for, but there are ways to dress it up. And there may be courts that are receptive to it, where you can show that the asset that you're freezing is in the country. I'm, I'm actually mm -hmm. involved in a case like that where you argue that the asset is definitely in the country for all these multitude of reasons, but you're not able to exactly identify it because it's hidden behind corporate structures or a very difficult secretive regime, um, you know, jurisdiction where everything is in a black box. And you want, you want the court to not just freeze this unknown asset, but also tell you about it. Understood. And you get the information out in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think freezing orders, from my perspective, I've worked on a few of them to support them. Um, I was telling you earlier, it's a bit of a catch-22. It's not just about identifying an asset, but um, also about trying to prove that it's about to be dissipated or you might lose control of it. And um, one, one case was quite interesting because um, we heard through local real estate agents that uh, the debtor was about to sell two uh, real estate assets worth collectively worth about £30 million. Um, and, um, the type of evidence that was available at that time wasn't much because it wasn't listed on any of the portals. Um, instead, what we, what we, all that we had was a couple of real estate agents saying, yes, they listed for private sale. And what we managed to push them towards was actually sending us brochures, which they were circulating amongst private buyers. And that was quite useful. 
but um, I didn't know that there was um, a disclosure order angle to this as well because um, these assets were controlled by offshore companies. So that's quite interesting. But that's also where you, you know, your value is that you may be asked by the lawyers to make a witness statement there. If yes. you've been gathering that information, you know, you, your, your role might maybe to make, swear, swear an affidavit in support oh. of a freezing order, um, which is a significant uh, responsibility. Yes. And, uh, no, there's multiple ways to come at this. And um, I think um, there's there's multiple disclosure avenues that's clearly coming up right in our conversation that investigators need to bear in mind. Um, I'd like to move on to litigation versus arbitration for us non-lawyers, right? Does it make a difference with uh, disclosure orders? Um, how would you um, describe the differences between litigation and arbitration from a disclosure um, application perspective, Jagdish? Well, an arbitration is a private dispute resolution process. Yes. And we, we touched on that when we talked about why the US Supreme Court decided what it did last mm -hmm. year. And because it's private, uh, the, the key point to take home is that the tribunal has limits in what it can order and against whom, more importantly. Right. Now, if, if your target is your opponent, in terms of who has the information, then you can go to the arbitral tribunal and say, well, I'd like that information. Mm -hmm. And an arbitral tribunal might oblige. Mm -hmm. It might give you the orders you need. Sometimes the other party might just not comply. And the only thing that comes out of that is the tribunal will draw an adverse inference. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, your only option is to go to a court because the court has the backing of the state behind it. So it has, you know, police powers, if you will. Right. Then there's a question of which court you go to. Um, and then we're back sort of, one would think almost that you're back to square one where you're, you're back in the court systems and everything we've talked about already comes into play. Mm -hmm. But because it's in an arbitration context, there may be a little more that's available to you. Mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've just heard that in the United States, it's gone the other way yeah. <laughs> because there's less available to you. But in other countries, it's, it's not so. You, you can go to a court in, first of all, in England, Take, taking England first. Um, the court has powers under the Arbitration Act mm -hmm. to compel the production of a document uh, from a party located within England and Wales. Um, it's it's more difficult when the party is outside England of it, in Wales, mm -hmm. but under Section 44 of the Arbitration Act, it's, it's quite broadly defined to say the court can you know, make any order that the tribunal can make with, with regard to taking of evidence. And, and the tribunal could hypothetically make an order against a party that was outside of England, mm -hmm. assuming the opponent was outside of England. So the, the court should be able to do the same thing. The question is, will that party who is the third party who is outside of England comply? And what do you do if it doesn't comply? You, your, your remedy would be contempt in the English courts, mm -hmm. but then question you know, how much that has any impact on that third party, unless it's got assets in England or it's passing through England for some reason. Um, you're then, you're then sort of left with other more creative options. So for example, you could ask the English court to issue what I described earlier, a letter of request to a foreign court yes. and say, please help us because there's this arbitration going on. It's seated in London and the party who has the documents is outside the court's jurisdiction, but it's within your jurisdiction. Please give us the documents. You might mm -hmm. be able to go directly to that country and get documents in support of a foreign seated arbitration. An example of that would be Sweden. Mm -hmm. Sweden, under their arbitration act, they they um, you can get document disclosure orders from their court um, 
from their courts against Swedish parties or parties within the jurisdiction um, in aid of a foreign-seated arbitration. And I believe the same is the case in, in France and Germany. Um, so so, so th- those those would be the tools at your disposal. Excellent. Um, and that's, that's useful. It clearly depends on which jurisdiction is more friendly towards arbitration as well, I'm guessing. A little bit, yeah, yeah. Um, Joel, do you want to add anything to that? No, Jack. Jack summed it up well there. I mean, that the, the the fact is, as as he said at the outset of of that point, really, that that the arbitration is a is a, is a contract. It's an agreement between the, the 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 parties. They've agreed that private method of dispute resolution, and so the ability to operate outside of the arbitration depends on what the arbitration the arbitrator's powers are and what they're willing to order. And if they're if you're trying to get documents from a third party outside of the arbitration, then you're looking at the seat and the powers of the supervisory court to help you, where the tribunal can't help you. In litigation, it's uh, you know you're, you're no one's uh, you, you may have chosen an exclusive jurisdiction clause so that the parties have agreed to submit the dispute to a jurisdiction, but beyond that, you then have all the powers of whatever jurisdiction you're in to seek information orders. And as we discussed earlier in England and Wales, you gather information or evidence as, as, you, as you see fit. So it is a very different situation. And for an investigator, if you are supporting parties in an, a party in an arbitration, if you're supporting a party in litigation, you'll be guided by the lawyers as to what processes you should be following and, and or, or I should say, what processes the parties can follow within those proceedings. And then, you know, how what freedom you have to then gather evidence against parties. Understood. I think that brings us up very nicely to our next point, which is we've spoken about litigation, arbitration. We've spoken about some disclosure avenues that we have at our disposal. What's new? What's coming up? Are there um, any new pieces of legislation in the wings we should be aware of? Joel, do you want to dive sure. in? Yeah, well, there's there's a piece of legislation that came into force in October 2022, which is a uh, a, a new uh, gateway introduced in the civil procedurals in England and Wales designed to harmonise the ability of parties in litigation here serving uh, orders outside of the jurisdiction against for information and documents against third parties. So previously, without kind of going into the technicalities of it, there was a question of whether orders for information against third parties could be served outside the jurisdiction conflicting conflicting answers to that question, also depending on what kind of order you're seeking. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that this paragraph 3.1, section 25 of the practice direction 6B, to be precise, Very specific. Uh, <laughs> yes. is the gateway of, of interest for us, and particularly mm-hmm. for fraud pra- practitioners in trying to obtain information from third parties. So if you're in seeking the identity of uh, information which is held by a crypto exchange right. that's located offshore, uh, or transaction information from a bank, mm-hmm. or the identity of the owner of assets, this gateway enables you to, uh, it, it is a gateway to be able to obtain information. So as I said, identity of, in, of a defendant, what's become of property, um, and it really, it's to support a claim that's been made. So it might be within proceedings, or it's to obtain information to help you bring a claim. So it can't, it's not a standalone remedy that there's usually with interim relief, freezing orders and these types of, uh, you know, third party information orders, they are supporting a claim that has been made or will be made. And um, 
really uh, that brings us back to sort of where we start, where we were talking about earlier, Norwich Pharmacal Orders and Bankers Trust Orders. I should say that although the gateway is an opening, it doesn't mean that you don't still have to fulfill the criteria to convince the court that you should be in, entitled to serve out the information. So you still have to fulfill the test for serving out the jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's an important factor that you can't overlook. So if, if you don't convince the court that you've got a good case in the underlying claim you want to bring, the court won't help you. And if, for instance, you're still seeking an order against a foreign bank, they're still going to look into the, the jurisprudence and the, the facts that support your application to work out actually whether, you know, it's going to cause the bank any difficulties in responding to you. So it's not a free for all in terms of just there being a gateway. You still have to tick lots of uh, other boxes that are case specific. Understood. Um, so I think the question is still open as to how wide it is and what you can do. Um, like you rightly pointed out earlier, Joel, which is, you know, what do you do when the other party doesn't respond? What? Well, that, that's yeah. that, that's the thing, you know, that that we will be will be living the answer to that as yeah. fraud practitioners in the next you know few years and the you know the the jagdish has already talked about contempt of court yes. so an order gets made served outside the jurisdiction and someone doesn't respond the 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 question then is well the, the, if it's a for instance i don't want to sort of generalize but if a crypto exchange in a in a in a far flung jurisdiction may not feel the same way about being contempt of court as a respondent to that application who's got assets in England and Wales or a person who needs to come to England and Wales yeah. who would be in contempt of court and could be subject to contempt proceedings. Jagdish. That's obviously a very material yeah. development in civil proceedings. The other, yeah. the other one I could think of, it's not as recent, but its use is definitely more recent, mm-hmm. is, is unexplained wealth orders. All right. Now, yes. unexplained wealth orders are not a conventional disclosure tool. Just, just saying that up front. So there have been two of them, right? I think take. there have been, yeah. There's, there've definitely been more. There's definitely been more than one. I couldn't tell you how many. Yeah. Um, but, but this is is not, and I, I want to say that you know very clearly, this is not a a disclosure tool in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Here, you are targeting someone who is either a politically exposed person or is accused of a serious crime, and. Um, you're making a, an application to the court in respect of a property, you know, worth, I think it's over 50,000 pounds situated anywhere in the world, which there are reasonable grounds to suspect, you know, it was involved in some sort of criminal activity or was obtained using assets that are beyond the target's known means. Right. Uh, if if some, for example, if someone has a salary of fifty thousand pounds, how do they own a fifty million pound townhouse in Kensington? Hundred percent. Or, right. or, or the example, which is public knowledge from the first unexplained wealth order case, was of the wife of a former state banker of Azerbaijan, Mr. Hajiev. Yes. Yeah, Mr. Hajiev, who, who, who basically spent sixteen million pounds at Harrods. I think one million pounds of that was at a cafe. I, what was it? Wow. <laughs> Lots of sandwiches. Lots of Absolutely. sandwiches. Um, big, big appetite, really. Yeah, big appetite. Now, now, there, there, there are there are some there are some problems here. Mm-hmm. It's, it sounds very attractive in principle, but there are some problems. And and of course, what I do need to tell you is how do you get disclosure out of it? Because yes. that's what we're here to talk about. The 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 first problem is it's not you and I as civil practitioners or you know civilians who can go after get these get these very cool orders from the court. Mm-hmm. It's only the the law enforcement authorities in the UK who can. So the first challenge is getting them interested in it. All right. 
Um, the second challenge is that the the individual or the company is going to give the information mm-hmm. to the law enforcement authorities. Yep. And you as a civilian don't have an obvious right to it. You certainly don't have an automatic right to it. There are cases where the police is expected to share the information with the victim, and that is part of recovery proceedings. Uh, but let's assume you're not in that situation. I guess the only way to get information, and I, I, I must confess, I don't believe this is tested, maybe Joel knows, is to try and combine the UWO with an Norwich Pharmacal Order. So the question then is, can you get Norwich Pharmacal Relief against the authorities who hold that information, the police or the SFO as the case may be, to then get you that, uh, to then get you what you need? I think one of the mechanisms um, that you've outlined, the NPO, uh, in conjunction with the UW is quite interesting because um, if I remember correctly, um, the assets held by Mr. Hajiev and his wife, uh, Mrs. Hajieva, who I think is still living in Kensington, near Harrods, um, were held via a variety of trusts and um, shell companies in common law jurisdictions. And therefore, an NPO could potentially give you access to the underlying share registries and other documents which would draw a direct link between them and the funds uh, hypothetically siphoned off from um, the bank. Possibly. That's interesting to combine two different disclosure mechanisms to try and arrive at um, the outcome that you seek. That's very interesting. Um, So we touched upon the UWO, we touched upon um, a couple of other applications. Can you talk us through an NPO and what's the threshold that you need to meet? Are there any criteria that you need to be aware of, Joel, at a high level? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's effectively an order. you're seeking to try and obtain information from a third party, as we discussed before. Mm-hmm. And um, you're looking to um, trace property, obtain information relating to wrongdoing in question or the or the identity of the defendants to whom uh, the claim might be brought. So you are um, you are showing the court how the um, what 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 the underlying claim you have is against the main defendant. And then you're saying that the uh, third party holds documents which you can't obtain from your defendant. Mm-hmm. And you need to go to this third party and seek this disclosure order against them because they're effectively involved somehow in the wrongdoing. So um, it doesn't mean by necessity that that party's responsible for the wrongdoing, but they've been mixed up in that wrongdoing in some way such that they hold that information that you can't obtain from your defendant. Understood. Uh, I'm guessing that's usually the registered agent in many cases. It could be anyone. It's exactly, it, it could It could really be anyone. It could be an accountant. It could be mm-hmm. a bank. It could be a, a person who is right. involved in, you know, it could be a person who has invoices, mm-hmm. forged invoices. It could be someone with transaction records. I mean, it's a, the in a way, the identity of the, uh, the recipient of the order is probably most relevant where uh, it's a bank in relation to a, a banker's trust order. But there's no sort of bar to who you can seek the orders against. I, I, I don't suppose, unless uh, Jagdish can think of anyone in particular. Maybe a state entity would be more tricky than a than a, a civilian, as you say. Yeah, there might be immunity issues. I mm. think against ordering a state because I think there are limitations under the State Immunity Act, for example, against things you um, against sort of compulsive orders against states. 
Okay. So there, there may be limitations there. Um, the other, the other challenge is obviously where the proceedings are outside the jurisdiction. So the proceedings themselves aren't in England and Wales, then the NPO is of limited utility. Then you're back into the territory of, um, judgment, uh, mutual judicial assistance treaties and things like that, where you have to ask the English court to help you out. Um, so the N the NPO, the, the other, the other thing I would add to what Joel said with the NPOs are one, one challenge with the NPOs are you've got to be quite specific in what you're asking for. Understood. You've got to yeah. be quite targeted. You're not going to have, um, a fishing expedition allowed. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess that's a challenge for investigators because sometimes what investigators are trying to do is trying to get a breadth of information. Yes. Um, they, they want, they want, they want to see a lot from where then they're going to drill down into the specifics of what their case or their instruction needs. Uh, but the NPO is looking at things the other way around. It's really when you're drilling down and you want something very particular that you're going to be able to, um, access that. I think it's a really important point to make as well, that the Norwich pharmacal jurisdiction as you say, Jagdish, has to be used for, for, for the reason that you're obtaining specific information, you know, like phone records or transaction documents. And in fact, I was involved in a case, I think uh, five or six years ago now, which um, was uh, a case where the, the, the court eventually found that the Norwich Pharmacal proceedings within, which were allied to other, another piece of litigation were being brought for an abusive process. So somebody was using the web, the, 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 the application jurisdiction to try and oppress a th another defendant by attacking a third party. So imagine that, uh, you know, you, you, you as a, as a defendant have uh, professional service, uh, uh, suppliers, you know, if, if the applicant seeking the information from, uh, is trying to effectively oppress the other litigant by beating up their, uh, professional service uh, advisors by trying to get information for the, for an abusive purpose, then that, that, that will render the, the application to be uh, dismissed uh, with probably indemnity costs against the other, the, the, the defendant in question or the party in question who's caused the application to be made. And that's exactly what happened in the case I was involved in. We, we received an order, a third party and an individual for a delivery up of his phone. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the reason that they'd made the application was to try and attack the, and a, a defendant by seeking this phone order from, from my client, who wasn't a, wasn't a party. And um, after a number of uh, return dates and other hearings, the true purpose of the Norwich Pharmacal came to light. And in fact, there was a, a, lot, a lot of investigators were involved. There were the investigators that were trying to prove that the claimant needed the phone records. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were... And this probably brings us on to the next point we're going to discuss, which is how you defend these orders. Uh, and uh, ultimately, we were able to show that the, the claimant and the investigators, mm -hmm. sorry, investigators, were seeking the phone records for effectively an, an unlawful purpose, an oppressive purpose. Understood. No, that's good to know. So it's not just something that you can use in any context. You need to be um, careful about what context you use it in as well. Understood. Um, and like you said, you know, that brings us on to probably a very interesting point, which is let's put ourselves on the other side and um, imagine that we have disclosure applications 
um, going against our clients, right? Your clients. Um, so how would you defend against a disclosure request? Um, you know, would you attack the service? Would you undermine investigators? What what tricks would you use to protect your client? I'd say three things, um, and and these are more tactical um, than than necessarily you know the legal steps. Um, the mm-hmm. the first is. Um, and this is something I've I've actually deployed quite effectively in cases is to look at the information that is being sought from you and ask yourself as a defendant, can they get this information from somewhere else? Um, the number of times you know you'll face document requests for things that are, are public or are going to be public, and someone is just not making the effort to figure out how to get it. For example, you know, the freedom of information requests and things we talked about before. So they're being lazy. They're just being lazy. They're just coming after you because you're easy. You hit them there and you say, you tell the court, well, why do they need it from me? They can get it from uh, somewhere else. Or I've seen cases where someone is after, um, after me for corporate accounts, which are going to be published eventually, you know, in, in terms of annual financial statements. And you say, well, if you want that information, just wait, it'll come. Mm-hmm. It'll come in the annual financial statements. That's one, that's one option. Uh, the, the second thing is a point we touched on through, through this podcast, which is the, the nature of the requests when you're asking courts. So when you're coming to the lawyers and saying, help me with disclosure, as opposed to when the investigators were doing it initially, you've got to be targeted. We've said that again and again, and that's a great tool available to the defendant, mm-hmm. which is to say, that's not targeted enough. That's too broad. That's asking for too much. Um, this is the most common strategy I think that defendants use. Um, you'll see it a lot, even in things like letters of request proceedings, where although a foreign court has written the letter requesting what it thinks it needs, um, when it comes to the English court, and, and this you'll see this a lot in U.S. proceedings that come to in England for help. So it's a U.S. Mm-hmm. proceeding. They've written a letter of request. It's coming to England. Now, there's differences in the approach in disclosure in these two countries, as I mentioned. The U.S. is much wider. England is a bit narrower. So in, in the U.S., you're allowed to ask for things that are essentially trains of inquiry. So you're asking for something mm-hmm. that leads you on to something else. But you're not allowed to do that in England. And so the court will just chop off all of that stuff out of the letter, even though the foreign courts ask for it. The final one I would say um, is, <laughs> this is very tactical, is costs. Now, when you're a third party, um, you don't have to pay for the costs of complying with someone's document request. The person asking for it typically has to pay, typically. And so, you know, one way to defend against these things is to just make it very expensive to get the information. It's a, it's a factor that the claimant will no doubt have in their mind. You know, how valuable is this information to them? How much are they re- willing to spend for it? Um, and, and, and it's when you challenge those strategies that the claimants have employed in coming after you, that you might learn things like what Joel described in his case, where, you know, actually someone is coming after you for information they don't need. It's, it's oppressive. It's tactical. So make it expensive for them. Well, okay. I hope you've not given away too much. (laughs) (laughs) Joel. um, Yeah, I I think he, that those are excellent points. And uh, both of them I had in mind, um, in particular, the fact that for a Norwich Pharmacal, you know, you're you know, you're, you're the, the, the recipient of the order is able to claim their reasonable costs of responding. So if the, if the reasonable costs of responding are, are eye-watering, um, as a, a realistically eye-watering, then uh, it would make the, um, the, 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 the requester think again. Um, 
you've, I think, you know, an unobvious one here is obviously service and attacking service, but that has obviously limited, um, unless there's a limitation issue that has limited viability because someone will just reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's not always a, a great, a great answer. Um, I think, yeah, purpose is so important. You know, why is information being sought? And I don't think we can avoid that as, as looking at, uh, as, as one of the, the starting points for what, why would we respond to this order? Uh, and then there's also another uh, response, which is only fitting in certain circumstances, which is just the I'm useless response to the order, which is <laughs> I just can't get my stuff. I can't get myself together. And in, in, in some, sometimes, you know, you see third party disclosure orders being made against individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was on, involved in a case where uh, it was a, a fairly chunky set of proceedings, but the orders being sought against uh, a, 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 unbelievably like an odd job man, someone who services properties, uh, f- and he was being asked to deliver up invoices. Now, if we if we we all know people that do home repairs, you know, with respect to them, they're busy. They don't have time necessarily to keep their paperwork in order. And if your paperwork isn't in order, and you've got a lot of paperwork or a lot of documents, mm-hmm. then the, the production of the request can sometimes be more um, hard to, you know, to, 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 it's harder to meet the order, especially for individuals. And, um, you know, without wishing to sound too tactical, that could be one of the, the ways of resisting is just, you know, I don't have all the documents, which you've obviously got to be careful that you're not, um, in contempt of, of an order that's made against you. But that's what I was about yeah, to ask. Is yeah. that a fine line then? For sure. Yeah. Cause especially for an individual, you definitely don't want to be in contempt. Um, but there are people who just simply don't have the ability to recall or to produce the information. Documents, uh, document destruction policies, uh, you know, legitimate ones uh, exist. And sometimes people don't have documents or data. And, and that's actually, Joel, where the cost thing also comes up. Because we've, we've been involved in matters where the, the data was there, was there. It mm-hmm. was destroyed under, you know, your standard document mm. destruction policies, which is not surprising because remember that third party is not subject to some sort of litigation hold, right. which would oblige them to preserve their documents. So yep. they've just gone and applied their usual document destruction policies. Now technology keeps evolving and you've got ways to get that, get that information back. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're being cooperative, but the cost attached sometimes to, 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 to getting that information, then sifting through it, and by the way, they're allowed to lawyer up because they're allowed to have mm-hmm. um, access to a lawyer and they're entitled to reasonable fees, legal fees. Mm-hmm. It might not be worth the information. Right. Just too much effort for something that might not be very valuable. Too expensive. Yeah. Right. I think one final point was um, we'd mentioned, uh, Joel, you'd mentioned in our chats earlier about undermining the investigator on the other mm. side. Mm. Um, that's quite interesting because uh, we've had a few cases where we've had to go against investigators on the other side as well. And then it's all about what you can find to disprove what the opponent's investigators have found. Do you have any cases where, um, you know, you've uh, found something quite useful that's come out of this exercise? It's sometimes a bit of a red herring because Mm -hmm. um, particularly for service, you know, you're looking into is, did the investigator really do what they said they did? And can you, can you, do you want to invest in the time and money in trying to disprove the evidence of the investigator? Mm-hmm. And often the answers should be no, because um, you'll, you, you may not, you, it's a pyrrhic victory in that we've talked about reserving something. Mm-hmm. So um, 
the credibility of an investigator may come into question where uh, where orders are being sought for asset preservation. Investigators trying to explain to the court or the tribunal the, the state of affairs involving an asset. And again, the, you know, you have to query what's the value in 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 trying to resist uh, the evidence. Um, the, you know, the 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 investigators instructed by lawyers to carry out that task. If their evidence is factually wrong, I swear you're going to that will be drawn out. And if it's an interim, if it's interim proceedings, there'll be no cross examination. So the evidence just sits there and maybe criticised orally, but you don't you don't get a chance to. To, to, to you know cross-examine the investigator if the investigator is there at trial obviously then it's a different issue because they could be subject to cross-examination yeah um i haven't off the top of my head i can't think of a of, a, of, 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 of an instance where i've seen it an investigator cross-examined at trial but it's mainly where i was going with my answer was that you know there'll be efforts made to discredit the evidence of the investigator during the proceedings where their evidence supports in an interim application of some kind Understood. Um, do you want to share an example? I think you'd. Share oh well, yeah. uh, I was thinking about um, uh, an arbitration I was involved in, where the investigator had been to an airfield mm -hmm. to uh, sort of sift through the records of um, of, of, a, of a client who owned uh, uh, helicopters, and the investigator mm -hmm. had um, looked at um, flight times and ownership records that were available through the um, the airfield's logbook mm -hmm. to show that. Um, there'd been no flights or that the, or that the helicopters had been moved as a way of trying to show dissipation, um, in response to, uh, in, 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 in support of an application, unusually in an arbitration to, to get security for costs against a defendant, mm -hmm. which is not normal. Um, and cause, and in response to an application by the defendant for security from the claimant, which is more common either in arbitration or to some extent, but much more so in litigation. So um, there you have an interesting job, probably for an investigator who's, you know, snooping around an airfield, getting transaction, uh, sorry, getting log records. And uh, the question is then, what do you, do you, do you deploy evidence to show mm -hmm. that they were, shouldn't have been there or that they had, have made some sort of factual error? Or do you just let it ride and assume that the uh, legal points will override uh, the factual uh, evidence? Understood. Thanks very much. Um, just to wrap up then, if I had to ask each of you, what's your key takeaway from the discussion that we had today? Um, Jagdish? Well, the key takeaway for me is is the need for cooperation. Mm -hmm. um, and and you asked at the outset, you know, when, when does that cooperation begin? Um, I told you, I think it should begin as early as possible. I think, I think it's a balance in a way um, because what we don't want is the investigator not making the full effort because they think the lawyer will come in and help with some judicial method of getting that same information. Yeah. We've, we've talked about the disadvantages of the judicial method, you know, notice to the other side, costs, time, and things like that. Um, so, so you want to have a very collaborative environment with the investigator where the investigator understands that they need to do everything and litigation is the last resort. Um, I think that also plays a role in terms of how you discredit someone else's investigation, because when you can show that the other side's investigator hasn't made their best efforts, that is a very great way to resist a disclosure application made against you. So, so for me, that's the big take home point. You know, it's about collaboration, it's about best efforts, and it's about knowing what each other can do and is doing. Excellent points. Um, Joel? 
I agree with that. And I think that that for an investigator, if you have a, a general understanding of the legal framework, the legal purpose of the information you're gathering, it, it really must help because it avoids that that sort of pitfall of uh, being told later on that we can't use this evidence or it's actually not relevant to the, the thing we're looking into. Uh, so from the client's perspective, because ultimately the thing that we probably uh, have omitted to mention <laughs> is that we're all working for the same clients. Yes. And so we're trying to achieve a purpose uh, either through primarily the, uh, you know, a pre-action route to gather information for a, for a set of proceedings or within proceedings to obtain evidence. And so we are working for the client to do that. And so, as Jagdish says, collaboration is imperative. Getting, being able to involve each other at the right stage is, 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 is the key thing. So for the investigator, you're thinking, is what I'm doing covered by privilege? Do, mm -hmm. I, do I need to worry about that? Do I need to tell the client? I think we need a lawyer. For the, for the lawyer, we, our skill set only goes so far. We, we can't, we don't have your skills as investigators. And therefore we, we need to say, actually, you know what, if we're going to win, if we're going to make this application, I need help. I need someone. Um, so then you say to the client, it's time to invest in, in a good investigator. Thanks for that. I think my key takeaway is, as both of you mentioned, good communication, keeping all channels of communication open, talking about what the best outcome for the client would be. And a key takeaway for me today is the fact that disclo disclosure applications don't have to be made independently. They can be tied up with one another. Um, that's quite interesting because at the end of the day, like you mentioned, Joe, you're working for the same outcome for the same client. So you have to think of the best method um, to get there. Well, thanks very much, gentlemen, for your time and your thoughts. Um, this is Akash Brahmachari, and this has been The Dispute Diaries. Thank you, Akash. Thank Thanks you, for Akash. inviting us. Thank you. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Decrypt, the podcast making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. For all our analysis and information about services we offer to organizations worldwide, visit controlrisks.com.